Let's read 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 13, shall we? Let's read together. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now, Lord, we thank you for your presence, and we thank you because your, your spirit is active and at work in this house. I pray that he will be at work and active in our lives in a new and fresh way today. I ask that you give us ears to hear what the Spirit will say in the midst of the preaching. I lift up other life-giving churches to you. I pray blessing upon them. I pray for our loved ones not yet walking in right relationship with you, and especially for sons and daughters who have wandered from the faith. I pray that you send the Holy Spirit after them and draw them so that not one of them will be lost. Father, I continue to join my prayer with prayers of people around this globe, specifically for the people of Ukraine. And I ask, O oh Lord, that peace will come to that region, that you will orchestrate peace, for you alone are the prince of peace. I pray that you will protect those people, O oh Lord, guard them, guide them. I, I pray, Lord, especially we, we, have, we have over a hundred Church of God congregations in that country. Protect those people and those pastors and those leaders, I pray. And Lord, I pray for the children in the orphanages that we have there that thank you that you've allowed them to evacuate and so they are out of harm's way. But Lord, they still need your help, they need your protection, and they need your provision during this time. So Lord, get in the mix of all of this, I pray. I pray that uh, evil will be pushed back and uh, righteousness will prevail. And Lord, I pray for the needs of your people, both who have assembled in this house and those who are joining us online. And I ask that you will extend the hand of your grace and help to them right at the point of their need. Touch them today, O oh Lord, I pray. Do not let us leave here the same way we walked in, but transform us by the work of your Holy Spirit. I pray all of these things today in the only name that matters, that strong name of Jesus. Amen. And you may be seated. In the year 1172, Donna Barto di Bernardo paid 60 coins for the bricks to build a new bell tower. Almost from the very first day of construction, however, the workers knew there was a problem. After they completed the first three stories, the tower started leaning. Not a little lean, a noticeable lean. As the years went by, the structure grew higher, but it leaned 
even more. I'm sure you know the name of this structure. It's known the world over as the Leaning Tower of Pisa. But do you know why it leans? It's because it was built on soft soil made of clay, fine sand, and shells. The tower is leaning. It's literally sinking into the ground because it has a faulty foundation. In Psalm 11:3, David sang, If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? He wasn't talking here in that psalm about the foundation of a building. He was talking instead about the foundation of a life. And more specifically, about the foundation of a faith that is enduring. And one of the things that concerns me as your pastor is that your faith is strong enough to last when the storms of life blow in upon your life. A strong faith begins with a strong foundation. Those of you who are students of history will remember that it was in 1517 that a monk named Martin Luther posted 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Church in Germany. It was written in Latin and was meant to start an academic discussion among his fellow clergy about the idea of indulgences. The Catholic Church was teaching that there was a treasury of merit in heaven. That is, some people had lived such good lives that they actually had leftover merit. And this merit that was stored up could be bought on behalf of your dead relatives or friends to reduce their time in purgatory. And people were traveling the countryside collecting money from people desperately hoping to give aid to their deceased loved ones. And the money was being used to fund the building of St. Peter's Basilica. Martin Luther proclaimed that this was unbiblical heresy and wrote 95 theses to refute this wicked practice. That's what he was protesting, hence the term Protestant. He proclaimed the real treasure of the church is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Students in Wittenberg translated the 95 theses from Latin to common German, made copies of them, and soon they spread all over Germany. Luther couldn't have known it at the time, but this is usually marked as the beginning of what we know as the Protestant Reformation. The cry of the Reformation can be summed up in five Latin phrases. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Sola Gratia grace alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Solus Christus, in Christ alone. Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. These are the five components of a solid faith that I want to talk about over the next few weeks. I begin today with sola scriptura, and the operative word is sola, which means alone. That one little word makes our faith unique. It means that the Bible is our sole infallible rule for faith and practice. It separates us, for example, from Mormons. They believe in the Bible plus the Book of Mormon. 
It separates us from Jehovah's Witnesses. They believe in the Bible plus the watchtower. It separates us from Christian scientists. They believe in the Bible plus the writings of Mary Baker Eddy. It separates us from the Seventh-day Adventists. They believe the Bible plus the writings of Ellen White. It separates us from Roman Catholics. They believe in the Bible plus the traditions of the church. The foundation that is strong and enduring and will cause your faith to stand in the face of opposition is one that is built upon sola scriptura, the Bible alone. You know, it's a, we learned this truth in Sunday school. We used to sing it. Remember? The B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God. The B-I-B-L-E. There it is. Now, now, I know that ours has become a skeptical and a cynical age. Anytime someone makes an appeal to the Bible as the foundation of wisdom or as an authoritative guide, that person is mocked and ridiculed and dismissed as hopelessly archaic and out of touch with the modern world. See if any of these statements sound familiar to you. You can't trust the Bible because it's full of contradictions. You can't trust the Bible because it's been copied and translated so many times that its present form is surely corrupted from the original. You can't trust the Bible because it's nothing more than man's invention to try and control people. You can't trust the Bible because the stories in it are myths. There, there might be some good morals in them, but they are fables that can't be trusted in any kind of historical sense. You can't trust the Bible because there are a lot of other books that shed light on the real Jesus of history that got left out of the Bible by the religious elite trying to control the narrative. You can't trust the Bible to be the only religious book that's right because there are so many other religious books that contain some truth as well, and they all contain some error alongside the truth. In the face of these arguments and many others that are being presented with such certainty, the Word of God rises up and proclaims in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. This verse comes from the second letter to Timothy and is part of the last words of the Apostle Paul. Sitting in a jail cell in Rome, soon to be executed, Paul writes this letter to his son in the faith, a young anxious pastor in Ephesus named Timothy. And we know from chapter 1 of this letter that Timothy's father was Greek. However, his mother, Lois, and his grandmother, Eunice, were Jews, and thus he was intentionally taught the scriptures, which in, would have been the Old Testament. He was taught those scriptures by them and trained in the faith starting when he was five years old. Chapter 3 of this letter begins with Paul telling young Timothy that the world is heading toward perilous, difficult times. He says that it's going to get darker by the day, and as a believer and a leader of the church, he's going to need to be vigilant against the godlessness of this age. He reminds Timothy of his own example through suffering and persecution and tells him that he should expect the same. It's simply a part of living the godly life. I don't know where we ever got the idea that if we just 
followed A, B, and C that we learned to do out of the scriptures, that life would always be easy. It's not, it's not, it's not there. It's not the teaching of the Bible. The Bible is not that you will not have difficulty. The Bible is that you will have a resource to help you in the midst of your difficulty that those apart from him do not have. But you're going to have trouble. Why don't you just tell somebody, you're going to have some trouble. The pastor's telling you the truth, so pay attention. You're going to have trouble. But if you want to be able to handle the kind of pressure that is coming, it's through the solid foundation of the Word of God. He says in verse 17 that it is through the Scripture that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And he goes on in the next chapter and he exhorts Timothy in verse 2, preach the Word. I've taken that as my personal exhortation. Preach the word. Don't preach my ideas. Don't preach, don't preach politics. Don't preach current events. Preach the word. For far too long, the church has allowed its voice to be silenced by the so-called wisdom of this age. We have allowed ourselves to be intimidated into a posture of defensiveness and have retreated from the bold proclamation of the word in the face of those who, under the guise of enlightenment and academic acumen, are so vocal in denying the truth and the authority and the power of the word. We have been guilty of allowing the world to set the agenda and to frame the argument because too often we haven't done our homework. We haven't thoroughly examined the claims that are being made against the Bible. And we haven't looked at the mountain of evidence that argues for the authority of the Word. Paul writes in verse 16 that all Scripture, you know what that word means in the original? Yeah, it means all. All Scripture is inspired by God. That's a great word, inspired. That word inspired is Theopneustos. It comes from theos, meaning God, and pneo, meaning breath. What he's literally saying is that all Scripture is God-breathed. It means that the source of all Scripture is God, and it is the Scriptures then that set the standard for how to get into a right relationship with God, and then how to live a life that is pleasing to Him. To which the skeptic will reply, but how can we know that the Bible we hold in our hand is indeed the Word of God and thus has authority to be the sole rule for faith and practice? Well, for the next few minutes, I want to try and answer that question. And I recognize on the front end of this, there is no way I can possibly address every criticism in the space of one brief message. But what I hope to do before we get out of here today is give you a reasonable argument to believe that this book we know as the Bible is indeed God's word to us and that it is reliable and authoritative for those who would be followers of Jesus. All right, it's my introduction. Whenever I talk about the reliability and the accuracy and the authority of the Bible, the first thing I would point you to is documentation. 
it isn't entirely accurate to refer to the Bible as a book in the same way you refer to a novel or even another religious work as a book. In reality, the Bible is a library or, or a compilation of 66 books. Some of them not even books, but, but more accurately, letters. These individual documents were written over a period of about 1,600 years by 40 different authors on three continents in three languages, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. A sampling of the writers includes an Egyptian-trained scholar, Moses, a general, Joshua, kings, David and Solomon, a farmer, Amos, a fisherman, Peter, a tax collector, Matthew, a physician, Luke, a rabbi, Paul. None of them were consciously or intentionally aware that they were writing something that would be included in what we know as the Bible. They didn't collaborate with one another. They didn't consult one another. They didn't have a, a single person collecting all of their stuff and editing their writings so that they would fit together as a whole. Amazingly, with all these different writers over such a long expanse of time in so many varied locations, there is one consistent theme that runs like a golden thread from beginning to end through each of the books. From the very first book of Genesis to the last book of the Revelation, there is a unity to the Bible that cannot be humanly explained. The message of the Bible is consistent from cover to cover. It tells the story of God's great love for lost humanity. From the time of man's willful disobedience against God in chapter 3 of Genesis through the end of chapter 22 in the book of the Revelation, the Bible tells the story of redemption and restoration. The Bible says, yes, you are lost. Yes, you're doomed. Yes, there's a problem. But God has provided the solution. And it's a story of the solution he gave and the way to get that, that, uh, that solution to your life. It's a story of grace. It's a story of God taking the initiative in bridging the gap and reconciling fallen man with holy God. It's the story of God doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves so that no one need to, be perish, need to perish but all can be saved. The Bible is far and away the most studied book in all of the world in world literature. One of the methods of study is what we call the bibliographic test. The bibliographic test looks at the ancient manuscripts of the Bible and asks whether the text of the Bible we have today is the same as the original. Now, I'm just going to give you a heads up and tell you on the front end, the simple answer is yes. Yes, it is. Now, let me back it up. The Bible has stronger bibliographic support than any other classical literature, including that of Homer, Tacitus, Pliny, and Aristotle. We have more than 14,000 manuscripts and fragments of the Old Testament. We have some texts that date back to 100 B.C., and there is virtual agreement between these scrolls and those that are dated 1,100 years later. In ancient times, remember, there were no copy machines, so copies were made by hand. 
in preserving what we know today as the Old Testament, the Jewish people had scribes who were in charge of the manuscripts. They labored in virtual isolation in great halls known as scriptoriums. They were so meticulous about doing it perfectly that they counted all the paragraphs. They counted all the words. They even counted all the letters so they would know if they had copied correctly. They even knew the middle letter of each book so they could count back to see if they had missed anything. So meticulous were they in copying that if they made a mistake, instead of using whiteout over it and trying to correct it, they would destroy the manuscript and start all over again. Scholars employ a couple of tests to authenticate the veracity of any ancient document. First, they ascertain how many copies of the manuscript of the manuscript exist. Then they determine how similar those copies are to one another. The higher the number of manuscripts and the greater the similarity between them, the more likely the copies are to be true to the original. If you have a 500-year-old text and a 100-year-old text, you'd compare those to see if there were any changes between them. Historians always consider the older copy more reliable than the newer copy because it was copied closer to the original. Now watch this. There are some 5,000 Greek manuscripts for the Bible. We have parts that date to around A.D. 120. Another section dates to about A.D. 350 and contained virtually all of the New Testament. Some fragments of Greek text date back to A.D. 120 and A.D. 150, which is only 30, between 35 and 100 years after the originals were written. Now compare this with other literature that historians consider accurate and you get a surprising discrepancy. The oldest existing manuscript of Plato is dated 1,200 years after the first writing. The date of the oldest existing manuscript of Caesar is 900 years later. That of Aristotle is 1,400 years later. But the date of the oldest existing manuscript of the New Testament is only between 35 and 100 years after the original writing. Some of the New Testament writings were written within a mere 10 years after the events of the life of Jesus. These writings of the New Testament were written by people who were intentionally writing history. And modern historians, even critical non-believing historians, are agreed that their writings are accurate historical records. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 about the resurrection of Jesus. And in that he says that 500 people were witnesses of him being alive after his death and burial. And some of them were still living at the time of his writing. See, there were plenty of people around to refute what he wrote, but none of them did. Over and over again, the Bible refers to historical events and assumes its historical accuracy. And the historical assertions it makes have been proven time and time again. Many of the events, people, places, and customs in the New Testament are confirmed by secular historians who were contemporary with New Testament writers. Historian Gary Habermas, who wrote the historical Jesus, lists 39 ancient sources outside the Bible that provide over 100 facts about Jesus' life, teachings, death, and resurrection that are consistent with the biblical record. When you compare the earliest manuscripts of the New Testament to the later ones, it's remarkable how close they are in content. 
Watch this. I, am I losing you? Are you, are you guys okay with this? Are, are you, I'm, I don't want I don't to bury you in the weeds here. The, the New Testament contains about 20,000 lines of text. And of those, there are only about 40 lines that have any question about them. That amounts, those 40 lines amounts to about 400 words, which is about one page of your, of your 200-page New Testament. Most of the variations are insignificant to the meaning of the text. Most of those variations are simply in spelling and punctuation. For example, you know, today, most of you know that I have a son named Sean. Do you have any earthly idea how many ways there are to spell Sean? I didn't know that until we decided to name him Sean. And he has seen them spelled probably all of those ways when somebody was addressing him and writing him that way. Well, that's the kind of, kind of thing that you get, you know, differences in spelling or punctuation. Of the variations that do remain, no major doctrine is affected by or built upon those texts. So, everything that really matters to your faith comes out of ancient texts that are fully vetted and verified. No other work from Greco-Roman antiquity is so well attested by manuscript tradition as the New Testament. Of the 25,000 manuscript copies of the New Testament, all are consistent with the New Testament I hold in my hand today. I'm telling you, you can trust this Bible to be what it says it is, God's Word to you. The next thing I would point to you or point you to when I talk about the reliability and the accuracy and the authority of the Bible, I would point you to discoveries. Every time a new discovery emerges from ancient sands, it confirms the accuracy of the biblical texts. The Bible isn't a science book, but when it speaks of things related to science, it does so accurately. The Bible isn't a mere chronicle of history, but when it speaks of historical places and events, it does so with accuracy. Renowned archaeologist Sir William M. Ramsey thought the New Testament writer Luke was foolish as a storyteller because he mentioned so many specific names, places, and dates. He made it his goal to disprove the historical reliability of the writings of Luke in the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. But after 30 years of studying, searching, and digging, he concluded this. Luke is a historian of the first rank. This author should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. Nelson Gluck, a leading Jewish archaeologist, said in his book, Rivers in the Desert, it can be categorically stated that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. There's documentation, there are discoveries. Finally, when I talk about the reliability and accuracy and authority of the Bible, I would point you to divination. The Bible uses the word prophecy, but I needed another D word for my alliteration. <laughs> So I chose divination. <laughs> Just want to see if she's paying attention. 
Prophecy is nothing more than history written in advance. There are a lot of Old Testament examples I could use, but in the interest of time, let me limit myself just to some predictive prophecies concerning the coming of the Messiah. There are over three... Are y'all doing okay? I, I didn't expect anybody to just shout and say amen and jump up and down and run around the building, but I thought maybe I'd at least get a couple of smiles every now and then. So. There are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that describe the details of the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of the Messiah. All of these prophecies were made hundreds of years before Jesus ever came to earth. The precise lineage into which the Messiah would be born, the place of his birth, the time and the manner of his birth, the reaction of the people to his life, the betrayal, the manner of his death, all of these are prophesied. They're just a fragment of the hundreds of details God placed in his holy word to identify his anointed one, the Messiah. And listen, these aren't just vague references or veiled images that are open to multiple interpretations. They are very specific descriptions. These are things someone who could, uh, these are not things someone could intentionally contrive to fulfill because most of them, like, like the place of his birth, the flight to Egypt as an infant, the manner of his death, j- just to name a few of them, those are totally beyond his control. So he couldn't decide, well, you know, I think I'm going to proclaim myself to be the Messiah, so I'm going to fulfill these prophecies. It's impossible to do that. And yet every one of the prophecies is fulfilled down to the smallest detail. Peter Stoner, in his book, Science Speaks, looked at the mathematical probability of one person fulfilling just eight specific prophecies concerning the coming of the Messiah. He gave the mathematical probability of these eight being fulfilled by one man at one in 10 to the 17th power. That's one with a, you know, 17 zeros behind it. And then he went further to illustrate what this would look like. Stoner said, imagine silver dollars stacked two feet deep throughout the state of Texas with just one of those silver dollars marked. The probability of one person fulfilling those eight prophecies was the same as turning a blindfolded man loose in the state of Texas and him finding that one marked silver dollar on the first try. The only way it's possible to write with that kind of accuracy is because in the words of 2 Peter 1.21, men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. I like what Charles Wesley said about the divine inspiration of the Bible. He put forth this proposition. The Bible must be the invention either of good men or angels, Bad men or devils, or of God. Then he said, it could not be the invention of good men or angels, for they neither would or could make a book and tell lies all, of, all the time they were writing it, saying, thus saith the Lord, when it was their own invention. He continued and said, it could not be the invention of bad men or devils, 
For they would not make a book which commands all duty, forbids all sin, and condemns their soul to hell to all eternity. He finished by saying, therefore, I draw this conclusion that the Bible must be given by divine inspiration. I kind of like what the old preacher said about the Bible being the word of God. He said, this book is the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It's the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's character. Here, paradise is restored, heaven open, and the gates of hell disclosed. Jesus is the grand subject. Our good is designed, and the glory of God is in. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, prayerfully. It's a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. Follow its precepts, and it will lead you to Calvary, to the empty tomb, to the resurrected life in Christ, and yes, to glory itself for eternity. Oh! Can I tell you I love this book? Can I tell you I love this book? When the reformers set forth the principles of sola scriptura, they were making the bold statement that it is only in the scriptures that we find the way to salvation. It is divinely inspired. It is profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. It is the word of God, the sure, certain, accurate, reliable, authoritative word of God. And can I just tell you today, the real challenge isn't to prove the reliability of the Bible. That's not the real challenge. The real challenge is to personalize it and to accept it as the authority for your life. You see, even though though there are logical, rational reasons for believing the accuracy and the reliability of the word, by themselves, these reasons are not going to convince anybody. The word isn't given to win an argument. The word is given to transform the life. At the end of the day, it isn't a matter of reason. It's a matter of faith. It isn't blind faith. It isn't faith without foundation. But make no mistake about it. It is faith. That's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2.14, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. 
because they are spiritually appraised. This book isn't a collection of academic propositions. It's a book of life. It is reliable and it accurately tells about a man, but not just any man. It tells about Jesus, the Son of God. Because the Word is reliable, then Jesus, who is the Word incarnate, is reliable. This Jesus declares in John 14 and 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. This Jesus declares in Revelation 3 and 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. And that doesn't really connect because of an intellectual exercise. It connects when the Holy Spirit gets involved in the mix. It, it connects when spiritual eyes of understanding are open to truth. It connects when the Spirit reveals the need you have for a Savior. And then opens your heart to bow to the only one worthy of the surrender of your life. Too many people are trying to build a life on what they feel or on what somebody else told them, or on what the culture decides. I want to tell you, all of that is no more solid ground than the ground under the leaning tower of Pisa. If you want to build a life that will stand the storms of life, build it upon the solid, unshakable foundation of the Word of God. I just believe the Lord wants to extend an invitation to two groups today. First, he's calling you to surrender your life to Jesus. Maybe you've been hesitant. Maybe you've been unsure if you could really trust the word and consequently unsure if you could really trust him. Maybe you walked with him for a while, but lately you've given in to doubt and you've drifted away. But perhaps today the spirit has used this feeble attempt at explanation to open your heart to believe in the reliability and the authority of the word and subsequently in prompting you to put your trust in Jesus as your savior surrender your life to his authority I want to tell you your life can be transformed today as you surrender to him and then second I want you to know that this Jesus this reliable authoritative word stands with his arms outstretched saying to anyone in need Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Somebody needs to hear that today. If you're one of the weary ones, if you're one of the needy ones, you need his divine help. I want to tell you, he stands ready to meet you, ready to touch you at the point of your need. Bow, bow with me, please, in prayer. Oh, Lord. Make up for my inadequacies today, I pray. Holy Spirit, do your work that I cannot do. Touch our hearts. Reach down to the, deep on the inside where we live. Cause there to be a spark of hope that rises. I pray, Lord, for that person that's praying with me right now saying 
I'm ready to surrender my life to Jesus. I ask you, O Lord, to give them the strength and the courage to do that. It's not a feeling. It's a decision. We turn away from what we've been doing, walking our own path, ignoring you, and we turn to you now to walk your path. We turn to you in faith. We turn to you in surrender. And Lord, I pray for those that need your help today. They came in weary, came in frustrated, came in not knowing the next step to take. Some are broken. Lord, all of us are struggling at some place. We just look to you now, believing that if we will turn to you and trust in you, somehow you'll be able to turn this around in our lives and give us the rest that we need. I'm praying for that for these people today. And I thank you for that. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.